This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. This symposium on public attitudes to refugees was organised by the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law in conjunction with the Migration Law Program at the Australian National University and the Centre for Refugee Research at the University of New South Wales. The symposium brought together academics, legal centres and social justice organisations to review existing literature on public attitudes to refugees, to learn lessons from other contentious policy areas and to consider new research opportunities relating to public discourse and attitudes about refugees. Um, So I'll just briefly introduce our speaker and our panellists. Peter Ellerton, who is our um, speaker for this session, is the director of the Critical Thinking Project at the University of Queensland. His work's been featured on ABC Radio National. He's a regular contributor to The Conversation, and um, he applies his research and work on critical thinking to the analysis of Australian political rhetoric, national political debates on climate change, and also on education reform. And what he's going to talk to us about now is belief formation and decision-making in modern politics. Then when we come to the panel, um, I'm going to first invite um, Tony Mitchell-Moore to speak. And Tony is Australia's leading political uh, qualitative researcher. He's a veteran of nine state and federal elections for the ALP and was recently interviewed for the program The Killing Season on the ABC. He's advised Prime Ministers, Premiers and CEOs of Australia's leading companies on both communication and campaign strategies. Then we have Najiba Wazifadost, who's the President of Hazara Women of Australia. She recently addressed a UN forum on the rights of refugee youth. She's a former refugee who fled the Taliban with her family and arrived in Australia by boat in 2000. She has a Bachelor of Medical Science from the University of Western Sydney. And at the end of the table is Paul Power, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Refugee Council of Australia, the national umbrella body for 200 agencies working with refugees and asylum seekers. He leads the Refugee Council's policy development and public education on refugee issues and its advocacy with the government, with international networks and the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. He also chairs the Australia, New Zealand and Pacific Working Group of the Asia-Pacific Refugee Rights Network. So, we have an expert panel and our first speaker, who is Peter. Please uh, take the floor. Thanks so much. Um, Thanks, everyone. I'm going to use this and walk around a bit because it's too late in the day and you may not fall asleep, well, you probably will, but I might, so I'm going to walk around a little bit. Um, And to the panellists, you're going to get a sore neck. Um, (laughs) I won't be offended if you just get up and walk over there and sit down if you want to um, or or however you like to go about doing it. Um, It's fascinating to have listened to what I could today. I was actually moderating something online during the course of the day as well, so I had to drop, stop in and out, but it was great to hear what was being said and and the depth of of what was being said. Um, It's really refreshing because as as an academic philosopher, it's so nice to be around people who do things that that matter and count. (laughs) And, and, you know, know, I do get a bit abstract sometimes. Um, In in my defence, I I did teach in high schools for 20 years, a lot of those in pretty pretty difficult areas, and I still work now in Queensland with um, high-performing Indigenous students, the little ones. Now, there's a, there's a neglected demographic. 
Um, and we, we work very hard in critical thinking with those guys to, to stop them from falling off the, the, the academic cliff um, and disappearing. And I, I, have, I have at least, I can bring some of my passion, hopefully, of why I think good thinking is important um, to, this, to this concept. So I'll do that. Um, my, I'll explain my title as I progress, um, but my, my talk about decision-making and belief formation is, is not going to be descriptive of how I think it happens, and it's not even going to be prescriptive, which doesn't seem to leave much. But uh, um, hopefully what I can do is, is say something that might point to what we can understand about it. <clears throat> okay. Um, if, if you really want to glaze over and just say, send me the links... Um, then these are two articles I've written on the conversation which, which kind of hit some of the, the core points that I've, that I've worked on. And um, I've taken some time to, to write those a bit more coherently than I perhaps will, will speak today. All right, so I'm going to start with the concept of decision-making because it counts. And it, it counts, obviously, not just individually but socially. I want to look first at individual decision-making, but not then at social, but rather to look at how social factors influence individual decision-making. And um, I'm going to, to, to shamelessly take something from an outstanding um, uh, TED talk by Ted um, Arley, um, the, the, the I think he's at Duke right now, the psychologist, because it tells us something incredibly important about decision-making, I think. It's a very small but powerful idea. Um, excuse the quality, it is a is video grab. Um, what, what Dan did was he saw this, uh, this subscription list in the, in the Economist website. And you could get a, a subscription to The Economist for $59 US, just an online one. And then you could get the print subscription for $125. It's understandable, it's more expensive and you've got to get it out there, that's fine. But then he saw print and web for $125 and he said, well, that's weird. Why would you do that? So he called them up and he couldn't get an answer, but they did take the ad down, oddly. And so he said, well, what would happen if I gave this to my students? I'll pick 100 of my students and I'll give this to them and see what, see what happens. And nobody was surprised with the answers. Nobody chose that central option. Most people took the last one. It's better value for money. So the obvious question is, what is the value of that second option? Why is it there? So let's take it out and let's run the survey again. Of course, when he did that, that's what he got. And, you know, it's fascinating that it happens. And that was kind of his point, that, you know, it really is interesting to see that that's, um, that influenced our decision, that, that seemingly useless third option. But what's really interesting to me in decision-making, and he does make the point too, is that every one of those people there, every one of those 84%, even the ones who would have changed their mind otherwise, would have explained why they took that option, would have given you their reasons, their really solid reasons why, and they would have told you it was their decision, and they would have believed it completely. There was just no doubt at all. This is the autonomy of my title. We get this sensation when we make decisions that they are our decisions. It's a really strong influence, omnipresent. So that was really interesting, I thought, the way he worked on that. And you get the same thing in a whole raft of areas. Another one he uses is organ donation. Um, so very quickly, you've got, you've got um, percentage of drivers donating organs here and organ donations there, and these are the countries. And uh, we might ask ourselves, what is it about these awful countries, these terrible, mean-spirited countries, 
and these wonderful warm fuzzy countries over here. Why, why the, the, the much, huge distinction between these two? And we think, well, you know, if you have, if you have a, an accident here, you're in trouble. Over here, you, you, you're showered with organs. <laughs> Choice of organs. So he said, what is it about these countries? Surely there's something in their culture that's going to be significant. So he said, well, not so, because it's Germany, Austria, the UK, France, Netherlands, um, uh, Belgium, Denmark, Sweden. It's not wildly different countries at all. Now, as many of you probably know, the reason they're different is because the driver's licence forms are different. That's it. Okay? Now, I, I, I've done this with students before to say, look, let's have a talk about whether you donate your organs. It's a big question. You know, why? Why not? Who would be affected? Who wouldn't be affected? Um, and, you know, it's a weighty decision. Um, but, as it turns out, it's just an opt-in or an out, opt-out option. So, that if you... Opt in, check the box below if you want to participate and you don't check, sorry, that's his grammar. You don't check, you don't join. Or check the box below if you don't want to participate, um, you don't check, you join. Simple as that. 100% down to 10% and a really important issue. So again, how much of that is our decision? Well, we don't know the answer to that. That's just two, two examples out of countless examples that are possible. We don't know the answer to how, how much of it is our choice, but we do know it's a lot less than we think. That, that much I think we can be confident with. Now, what's interesting to me about this too is that, and we hear it in surveys a lot, that you know, people respond in this way or that way, but it's really interesting because sometimes the reasons people give you, or themselves, are not always reflective of their decision-making. I mean, even if it makes logical sense what they say to you, does that mean that that's why they made that decision. It gets a bit murky. I think I want to investigate that a little bit. Um, it's an important idea. Oh, he did also have um, uh, computer-generated images. He called Tom and Jerry, and he surveyed them so they were equally attractive. 50% um, of people like Tom, 50% like Jerry. Um, and then he put a wonky Jerry in there. It was switched up on Photoshop and, uh, to see what would happen. He did the same thing with a wonky Tom. So what do you reckon happened now? when people were given the three options. Which way did they go? That's the interesting question, isn't it? So when there was a wonky Jerry, Jerry looked better. And when there was a wonky Tom, Tom looked better. And that's, you know, as the theory would suggest. And he did make the point too that um, it, it's a really interesting question then because if anybody asks you to go out clubbing with them, <laughs> you're a wonky version of them. All right, so one of the great lessons in cognitive science in the last few decades is, is thinking is, is not so much something we do as something that happens to us, which is a really odd idea. It runs counter to all our intuitions, our autonomy, our sense of autonomy, something that happens to us. How can that be? Surely we are the drivers in our decisions. We can feel it. We know. We can sense this independence in ourselves. So how can it be otherwise? As we know, it often is. Well, here's a, a quick talk about how we think we think. What we like to think about ourselves is that we start off with a range of premises, which we, we you know, well, the things we take to be true about the world and the, the issue we're talking about, and we synthesise and combine these things and we arrive at a conclusion in a kind of objective, rational way, um, a process technically known as inferring. So we like to think we infer, and indeed we do sometimes infer. But what we also know from the literature is that for most of the time, and disturbingly for the most important decisions in our life, uh, the conclusion comes first. And 
premises are only there um, if asked. So when you, when you say that Kahneman makes, Daniel Kahneman, the, the um, author of the great book Thinking Fast and Slow, the Nobel laureate, a psychologist, um, he makes the fascinating point that humans are almost never stumped. You, you can ask someone about anything, what they think about anything, and they'll give you an answer. Um, you know, do they say, look, I'm not sure, it's a great question, I'll go away, I'll read a bit, I'll talk to some people who know more than I do, and I'll get back to you with an answer. Yeah, yeah that's, how, that's how it works, isn't it? Um, so uh, he said, we can always give you an answer on anything. So how can this conclusion come first? And, you know, you say, what do you think about this? You go, oh, I think such and such. Why is that? Well, and then you start to look for the reasons why that might be the case. The conclusions come first. Something called rationalising. But how do you get this conclusion from nothing? How is that even possible, logically possible? A couple of ways to understand this. Uh, the first involves this concept of dual system thinking, which I think is a really important idea. I, think, I find it absolutely critical in education, but I also think in public discourse it's really important. And I'm very wary of, of you know, two system things. You know, there are two types of people, those who divide things into two types and those who don't. And this, you know, there's always two types, but, you know, left brain, right brain. But this, this has a fair bit of cognitive grunt to it, this, this one. Um, the dual system thinking idea. It's like this, system one, often called type one now. It is that thinking that's very easy. Most of you are in system one right now. You're just kicking along cognitive neutral. You're more or less just absorbing what's going on. It's fast, it's easy, it's unconscious. You're not controlling it. Um, even in your work, sometimes it's just governed by heuristics that you've internalised or algorithms, algorithmic approaches. And thank, thank goodness, because you don't want to spend your whole day paralysed by analysis. You, you want to just, you know, thinking shot from the hip, really fast and quick and effective thinking. It's good stuff. And you've got system two, which is slow, hard, consciously controlled. It's the stuff you have to direct and sustain. Let me give you an example. If I ask you right now to, in your head, multiply 23 and 76... Everything grinds to a halt, particularly <laughs> this time of day. You know, you go, okay, I'll do this, and I'll carry that, and that's got to go up there. And it's hard, it's slow, it's focused, it's sustained. And invariably, Kahneman has found that when you enter into system two thinking, your pupils dilate. Um, I have no idea what that means, but the fact that there's a, there's a physiological response to this cognitive change is fascinating to me. But... Um, this, this notion of moving into system, system two, which is difficult stuff, is, is you know, where we've got to spend a lot of our time, thinking hard and thinking slow. We don't like that space. It's a bit of a, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. We'll talk a bit about that later too. Um, okay. Here's a good example used by Kahneman himself. It's quite a famous one. Bat and the ball cost $1.10 together. The bat cost $1 more than the ball. How much does each cost? Now, two things are happening in your head right now at least. Uh, <laughs> probably other things you're wishing as well. Um, the first is that your brain is screaming an answer at you. Okay? It's saying, it's this. And you're going, uh, oh, hang on. <laughs> and your brain is, yes, yes, that's it. And as well as that, your brain is saying, now move on. And you've got to drag yourself back to this and go into that system too. Slow, hard, focused, sustained thinking. And it's hard work. And it's not fun. Um, but it's necessary. Oh, the pupils dilating, just a reminder for me. Okay, another great example. Um, so that's, that's your system two in operation. Uh, but it doesn't always work. Sometimes it just hangs back and lets system one work. How can that be? Isn't it a good example? So if I ask a group of people to, to think of a number between five and 12, 
the most common number is seven that people came in. There's always a, oh, yes. Uh, possibly there would have been if I said any number, though, but anyway. Uh, but, but it is, it is we, you know, this has been tried many, many times. Seven's the most common number. So why is that? Well, um, it seems to be that what we do is a kind of substitution in our thinking. We don't have any process in our brains for generating random numbers. Can't do it. We don't have one. But we can subtract. So your system mind is sitting there going, got me, I'm at a loss. But I can take them away. That gives you seven. Hey, that fits the criteria. Here you go. So when you go, oh, okay, thanks very much. All your system one work, you know, in ignorance of yourself. But I know what you're thinking. You think, well, I, I chose nine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's other ways. Always... <laughs> well, there is a big nine just there. A bit of priming in effect there, perhaps. Um, and... Uh, well, then you might say, I chose 11. Can't explain that, can you? And I say, well, no, I can't. And nor can you. That's the point. You've got no more idea about why you chose 11 than you chose 7. So we, got, we know that our brain is working not, not so much against us, but independently of us. Okay? It is, it's happening to us in certain ways. Um, and this transference is obvious not just in such trivial ways. Not sure what to think about climate science. It's, it's hard stuff. Almost anybody who tells me they're convinced or not convinced by the science, I don't believe, because it's really hard stuff. My master's is actually in science, and I did some climate science, and I know it's hard. I saw it, and I said, God, that's hard. And I, you know, I haven't thought much about it since, but you can either have, have, have credibility uh, in, in the epistemic nature of science, or you don't. I mean, you know, conspiracy, whatever. But it's not the science. Let's not kid ourselves. So if we're not sure about what to think about this, what do we do? Well, we say, well, what do we think about hippies? Well, now I know what to think about climate science. Or what do I think about big polluters? Oh, now I know what to think about climate science. We transfer what we think about one situation, you know, we substitute it, is the phrase that Kahneman uses. Substitution. It's often a substitution of values too. And I'm so glad that, um, that uh, Mark and, and, and Alex and others were, were talking about value. You have primed the audience for values, which is fantastic. So I'm going to talk about too a little bit. Okay. Um, and you did a substitution then. Your brain was trying to do a substitution, a subtraction problem uh, instead. All right, now, a couple of really important ideas here. This is the most important image in Kahneman's book, I think. Ease of thinking. This, this system one thinking, the fast, slow, quick stuff that just happens to us. How do we get it? Well, repeated experience. You just say things a lot. Where do we hear that? Repeat things three times, four times, until they just start to slide in. Um... Clear displays, primed ideas, of course. Always primed ideas, it just happens that way. Um, good mood and easy thinking. Feels familiar, feels true, feels good, feel, feels effortless, and most importantly, feels true. Um, this, is, this is an incredibly important idea, I think, that whenever the thinking feels easy, it has a sense of truth to it. And when people say, you, you explain to something to people, and they go, you know, that just resonates with me. Well, I like the sound of that. Are they really saying, well, I've, I've passed all your premises and your in pro inferential processes and I reckon you've got a solid argument there? Or are they saying, you know, good stuff? I like it. So you get into this kind of loop where you can convince yourself that next, next time you hear it, it's easier. It's true. And you surround yourself with people who do the same things. And you get into these loops, these, you know, these, these groups of people who think the same way. Uh, so it's quite a dangerous idea that something sounds right. And one of the things I always say to my students is 
one of the flags that you're just working in system one completely is, is if you've made a really quick decision. It doesn't mean you're wrong, not at all. But you've got to stop and think, well, why did I decide that so quickly? What was it that came to play? So that when you're, when, you're, when you're explaining to someone all your premises and conclusions, they're not so much saying your argument is as good as they are, um, just testing to see if, they're, if what you're saying fits in with their worldview, um, as it is. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it's, but it can look like that. It can look like that. We've got to be careful here. Um, this idea, I've pulled this out. This is one of my conversation articles. So I just wrote it here for me. A rigorous engagement with a complex issue is difficult and time-consuming. It's often a system two thing. We don't like it. Any more than I said, listen, before we go further, how about we do a quick jog around the, the building? But how you feel physically about that is kind of how you might feel mentally if you were asked to do something really onerous as well. Um, judgments are frequently instantaneous and satisfying. It's easy to imagine that we are thinking critically when we're just leaping to conclusions, Okay. Testing your judgments. Lots of examples of that. So we get to this idea of narratives, and I'm so glad it's all been primed for you. <clears throat> narratives are important in our system one thinking. They give us, as we've heard, they give us meaning. That's really important. But, but something else is kind of wrapped up in meaning as well. But it gives us something else that's really significant in public discourse, I think, and it gives us explanatory power. We can explain things and understand them if we have a narrative. It's not just meaning, it's explanation as well. And, you know, that, that's linked in... We, we see that in ourselves all the time, particularly with the, 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 the famous uh, cognitive bias of, of what you see is all there is. Uh, you know, the guy goes to the gym once, a guy like me, you go to the gym once, or you have two guitar lessons or a karate lesson, and you're an expert. Because you've, you've been there, you've done it, you've had the insight, and you've seen tiny bits, and you assume that's all there is. We assume that what we know about something is all... Now, we, we know intellectually that's not the case. But we do have this idea, yeah, I know, I've been there, I've seen that, I've done it. You know, I, I went to America for a week. I knew Americans, yeah, tell me about I know all about Americans. You know, this is sort of thinking. So um, we, we make the narrative out of what we've got. And... Here's an example. I, I deliberately chose two words, you know, third paragraph, seventh line, just two words. And you, you can't look at those two words without making a narrative. They're just, they're just two words. But you've made a narrative already. And that, that's kind of obvious, but, you know, these ones aren't. But you're trying right now. You can feel your brain doing it. So stop it. Stop. Try, try not to do it. <laughs> try not to do it make a narrative. You can't, you can't do it. Stop it. <laughs> So, you know, this is what we are. We're, we're storytelling engines. Um, so our narratives are important to me. And, the, and the, one of the ways we put them together is to give ourselves meaning and explanatory power. This is an incredibly important paper, I think. Um, it's it's an unwieldy title of the Perseverance of Social Theories. But I'll, I'll simplify and paraphrase in the hopes that I don't destroy the integrity of the message. But here, here we go. This is, this is what they did, basically. They said they're going to divide the group into two groups. It's a group A. We've discovered, these are the volunteers, right? The people, participants. We have discovered a correlation between being effective firefighters and high risk-taking. Now, we're not sure why that is. We wonder if you might be able to write down a story that you think explains why being a great firefighter is associated with taking risks. If you could do that, that'd be great. Thanks. So Group A went away and did that. Then they had a Group B. Group B... We've discovered a really high correlation between being a really effective firefighter and being risk-averse, taking no risks. Now, now, we're not sure why that is, but I wonder if you might be able to write down some sort of 
narrative about why you think that causal narrative about why that's the case. So, you know, they go away and they do that. And then they had to come back to the... They went back to both groups after it was all done, it was all read, and they said, actually, we made that up. We have no idea if there's any correlation whatsoever with anything. Uh, it was just made up. And then psychologists, in their clever way, they, they tested whether or not the two groups had, in, in full knowledge that it was just made up, ha-ha, it was a great joke, in full knowledge of that, whether or not that, that, that um, belief persevered. And it did, to a huge degree. Um, I can't remember the correlation. It's very high, 0.8 or something like that. So it, it was um, amazing that this narrative survived the destruction of the data on which it was founded. And that's an incredibly powerful story, I think, because the narrative has inertia. Our belief systems have inertia. And it's incredibly important politically. If we find out later that the children weren't thrown overboard, it doesn't matter because the narrative's being written and the narrative contains, and it's an explanatory narrative. So, um, you know, these, this thing, these things have huge impacts in how we understand um, our decision-making and our thinking. And I was going to talk about lack of framing too, but I don't have to. But it's nice, this lovely idea that the facts unframed won't set you free. You know, we have this idea that... that if only, if oh, I'll get to this later. Um, George Bush has a great example when he was president in, in the 90s, as he's pointing out there. Um, he, 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 released, <laughs> he released the phrase tax relief in a, in a media release, which was, which was beautiful. It was a lack of framing. It was beautiful. Tax relief. Because who can argue against relief? You know, it, it, it conjures up that image immediately. There's no sense here that what we've got is a kind of community effort. We're all better off, blah, blah, blah. It, you know, it's a, it's a masterstroke. Um, I particularly like this one. This comes from climate science, but you'll see it everywhere. When the, the scientist Peter Gleick um, got some... Got, I don't know how to phrase it myself now. Um, pretended he was somebody else to get some key documents from the Heartland Institute about their strategies on climate science. Prominent scientist, uh, climate scientist admits to leaking documents. Global warming activist admits to stealing. Peter Gleick admits to stealing. Climate scientist admits he leaked. Internal Heartline documents exposed. Heartland document retrieval. That's a good one. Whistleblower authenticates Heartland. You know, okay, so we heard um, someone earlier today saying, it, you know, which newspaper do you want to go and buy? Because all these stories are framed. So we can, we can get in our loops. Our, our fav favourite framers as well. But it's not just about language. Oh, I'm sorry, system two. <sighs> system two, group, group, system two. Um, I'll give you 30 seconds to see if you can come up with a, the next series down below. Next horizontal row down below. You know, the answer just looked really smug. Okay, now, you probably spent some time just staring at it, <laughs> hoping, no, seriously, hoping that a pattern emerged, hoping that your system one caught something. Maybe you spend all the time doing that, that's fine, it's late. Um, but you may have went into system two and you might have started to go, okay, well, look, they're all ones down there, but that one's not, so what is it? You, know, you might have done a bit of hard work, but you may not have. But, you know, f for much of us, we're watching TV news, we don't get into system two, we just sit there and, you know, let the judgments form, as they will. Um, 
Now, what's interesting about this, anyone know the next line? Okay. Um, <laughs> you told me they were really clever. Okay. All right, now the next line is, well, let me, let me rephrase it, phrase it like this. Each line is simply a description of the one above it. So we start with a one. So what's on that first line? One, one. So we write that on the second line. There's one, one. What's on the second line now? Well, there are two ones. So we write that, two, one. Okay? It's just a description of the one above it. And you know, the, more obvious, the more obvious one here, there are three ones there, so we write three ones. There are two twos, two twos, and one one, so one one. Now, my point is this. Language isn't just about, uh, framing isn't just about language. It's how you approach something. It's not even about values in this case. There can be deeper cognitive roots than that. Okay? You, if you saw it as a maths problem, if you framed it as a mathematics problem, you were doomed. Um, and I find that really useful. What I love working in critical thinking is that you can kind of work in a lot of spots in the university because everyone likes the word, you know, to be in their course. And, <laughs> and, and <laughs> yeah, I pretend I know what I'm talking about. But they, um, what I love is not that they, you know, you know A, you know B, you know C, so together we know ABC. That's, that's trivially true of working across disciplines. What I love is that they frame problems in different ways. It makes different answers possible. And I think we, we get locked into a, a framing um, scenario through language and media and politics and everything else, which we have to question sometimes. All right. So um, what, what, we've, what we've kind of got an understanding for is that, that um, we are grounded by our values. It's not just facts that, that influence us. I want to talk about that in a bit of detail. Not much, actually, but a little bit. Um, but what does it say? That, what does it mean that our values ground us? Do we mean that we find our values valuable? It's a bit tautological, isn't it? I mean, what does that mean that we're grounded by our values? Um, you know, we're all we're all kind of, uh, and we heard heard before um, from Mark that, that we are. It's kind of like a graphic equaliser. We'll have our different values, or a whole set of values that we saw, and we all have different different settings, if you like, at different times for different things. You know, we 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 use them that way, and that you know, with our different value set, we arrive at different conclusions. Different things are valuable to us. Um, understanding that, our values and our narratives are wound up in our decision making tools, and I want to make the point now. That, they're actually, that this is entirely rational. There is nothing irrational about this. We can come to wildly different conclusions rationally. And I'll make my point on this. Um, actually, I'll get back to that later on. Rational decision-making. Um, I mean, we've got to start from this idea that, look, if all ideas are equal, then all ideas are worthless. Some ideas have to be better than others. Some can be equally as good or bad as others, but... But there's got to be a... You can't have all ideas being equal. We just can't. So we have to have some kind of rational mechanism for, for working it up. And this is, this is why I put my cartoon up here. Um, the problem we have is that everybody thinks they're rational. Nobody laments their, their lack of rationality. People can say, gee, I've got a terrible memory, or I'm no good at maths, um, I can't stay awake. Um, but nobody says, I'm just so irrational. It, it doesn't happen. Not only do we all think we're, we're rational, we actually all think that we are the exemplar of the rational human being. <laughs> Don't we? Don't we? Of course we do. If only everybody could see things as clearly as I do, we'd be fine. Uh, we all think that. This is a problem. I work in education as well. Everyone's an expert in thinking and in education, of course, aren't they? 
So I have a hard time sometimes getting around this one. Okay, this will scare you, or it should. Um, so I'm going to talk about a model of rational decision-making for five minutes. Um, it's called Bayesian inference, um, and I'm just going to discuss it as a model of how it works rationally, but I'm going to show you that just because we have a rational model of decision-making doesn't mean we can't come to different conclusions and doesn't mean that we're irrational if we do, necessarily, necessarily. Okay, here's what it means. Don't worry about... This is more there for me so I can talk to it, but there are, there are two things to understand um, about this, um, three things. The first is that this is the probability. This is, this is whether you're convinced by something. This is whether you accept a certain hypothesis is true. The planet is warming. Okay? Refugees are nasty people, whatever the, wherever the proposition might be. Will you accept the proposition? Well, that depends on two factors. Um, and, and I might add, will you accept the proposition given some evidence? So I'll give you some evidence to think, hey, look, the planet's warming or refugees are really nasty people. Here's some evidence. Okay? So will it convince you? Two factors. Um, there they are there. Mathematically, I'll just move it to words, though. The first one is the strength of the prior belief in the hypothesis. Did you think the planet was warming before I showed you this? How strongly did you think that? Okay? Did you think refugees were terrible people before I gave you this evidence? So your prior belief, that's the important one, a way an important one. And the second thing is the strength of the connection between the evidence and the hypothesis. Here's some evidence. The, 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 the oceans are warming. The, the oceans are rising. How closely do you link that evidence with the hypothesis that the planet's warming? Okay, so the, the, how closely those two things are linked is the second bit. So the two things are your belief in the hypothesis before you saw the evidence and how closely you think the evidence links to the hypothesis. It explains this. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence because if your belief in the hypothesis is incredibly low, you will need some extraordinary evidence to convince you. But, by the same token, if your belief in the hypothesis is already very high, you only need a tiny bit to convince you before this, this Bayesian switch is thrown. Now, there's what I call the reasoning industry um, in existence. Because one of those, your prior hypothesis, now, maybe that's a narrative you already have. Maybe it's rooted in your value set, informs it. Maybe it's a system one response. You have a prior belief in some hypothesis. Then we have the reasoning, the evidence bit. There are industries devoted to breaking the connection between evidence and a hypothesis. Certainly in the case of climate science, there is. Okay? It is an industry. What evidence, what reasons can I give you to reject the evidence so that that Bayesian switch is not thrown? Even if you already think. So we have a dual attack on, on our accepting the hypothesis. Here we go. The strength of prior beliefs, which is a much nicer diagram, and the strength of the connection. All of these things here, narrative, system one thinking, framing, motivated reason, you know, do you want that conclusion for whatever reason? Confirmation biases, options, choices, values, this marketed reasoning, which is what I'm talking about. Um, all of these things are in play um, in your decision making. And if people are trying to affect your perceptions on things, there will be a two-pronged attack. There will be the strength of the prior belief, often as a narrative. Okay? So we can get your system one primed to be thinking in a certain way. So when you have to make a decision, you're already primed in your system 
one. The second thing is the strength of the correlate connection between evidence and the hypothesis, and we can manipulate that too. Humans don't necessarily look for the best reasons. We often look for reasons. As long as we have reasons to believe something, we're often happy. So this idea that we can update our beliefs on new evidence through a rational process can still produce incredible variety. It's about applications of values, the stories and narratives we have in place. All of this stuff affects our decision-making. It is almost impossible to have rational decision-making through a Bayesian model, at least, without any of those other things there. You know, they all come into play. But we need to understand this, this quagmire, cognitive quagmire. Um, and politicians aren't too keen. I mean, you don't see politicians saying, well, not all politicians, saying... Here's all the information for you. As a populist, we'd like you to consider this, come to the conclusion, here's what we think, make your call, but this is what we think we should do. You know, we, don't, we don't want... Thinking isn't effective. It's more important to get people to judge whether they like or don't like something. Appeal to their system one. Get their framing right. Get their value system right. Get their narratives right. And you will find that far often, even in front of the news, even as we do it normally, we will be judging far often than we're thinking. Even those of us just, you know, who like to think about these things sometimes. All right. Um, can I take 60 seconds? Okay, I will. So I'm going to suggest another set of values to add to our already busy schedule of values. I'm going to say, this is where I come from. In critical thinking, you know, I, I, I value thinking. Um, values, they're things that we value. What do we value about our inquiry? These are non-ethical values. These are not necessarily intrinsic values. But we value when we're inquiring some of these things. Cogency, that we must appeal to someone's reason, not their emotions. We can appeal to their emotions. Sure, it can be effective. But if we value that we should appeal to their, their, um, their reasoning, I think that's something to promote. That we value precision in language, that we value precision when we quantify things, so we can work with proper numbers. We value cohesion and accuracy and relevance and simplicity and breadth and, breadth and depth of analysis, plausibility of explanations and narratives, clarity and significance and all of those things. These are things that we can value and that we don't explicitly point to in our public discourse. And I think there's a values education lacking here as well. We should value these things and demand them of those who would lead us why? Because, like all values, they lead to certain virtues. And there are some of them on there. Kind of virtues. You, actually, you often hear this, see this written as you know, the dispositions of effective critical thinkers. This is what we want, isn't it? We want effective critical thinkers out there. People who can do this. One of the pathways to this is to work with those values and to explicitly talk, apply, and teach those values as well. And I think that's absolutely critical for really good decision-making. Um, where we want two types of thinking. We want divergent thinking. We want lots of views. We want to avoid false dichotomies. We've got lots and lots of ideas out there, but many people stop. One of my master's students this year started up an ethics centre at one of the hospitals in Brisbane. And she, one of her complaints was that it's just divergent thinking. Everybody comes and dumps everything on the table and walks away feeling good. There's no evaluative thinking there. Where are the tools of evaluation? What are they? Some of those values we talked about, the values of inquiry, can come into play. So we can move from this divergence to a, an evaluative idea. Anyway, that's a bit abstract. And uh, what I might do, considering the time, is leave it there. It's okay. <laughs>